Before I go any further, I would like to acknowledge uh, the warriors and the Aboriginal people um, on this continent. Uh, welcome to Frontier War Stories. Uh, before I go any further, I would like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as, as early as 1788 uh, until the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years uh, that Aboriginal people continued to fight. I would also like to pay my respects uh, to all Aboriginal mobs uh, across this beautiful continent. Um, each episode, I speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, and oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflicts and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. In episode 10, I speak uh, with Professor Lyndall Ryan, who is an academic and historian. Um, her recent work has looked at um, mapping out uh, massacres across Australia, um, which in itself, you know, would be a very, very heavy task uh, to put people through, to sort of looking at and, you know, defining uh, what one, you know, what is a massacre, but then also, you know, recording all these as well. But in recent times, uh, sorry, which, but what got her into, uh, I guess, sort of this field, uh, was looking at uh, resistance and the frontiers um, as well. So I think earlier on in your career, if I'm correct, Lyndall, you were looking at frontier conflicts? Yes, uh, many decades ago, I was looking at frontier conflict uh, along the Guada River in New South Wales and also looking at frontier conflict in Tasmania uh, during the Black Wars of the 1820s. So that was really a lot, a big part of my research life and that would have been in the 1970s and 1980s mm. and what I found then interestingly enough is that I didn't connect what was going on in Tasmania with say what was going on in New South Wales I saw them as discrete places and I didn't make any connection between say Tasmania and New South Wales and I think that's very interesting. I think as a historian, I was trained just to look at a particular region and see it as very specific. And I didn't realise that similar things were happening almost at the same time, say, in, in parts of New South Wales. So I didn't kind of make any connection that this was resistance, Aboriginal resistance being widespread, that uh, Aboriginal groups were using perhaps different tactics of resistance that related to the terrain in which they mm. lived. And I wasn't making any connection between the perpetrators who were carrying out these massacres. And many of them were former army or former soldiers, and that they might have been soldiers in Tasmania, and then uh, they might be working also in New South Wales. So I wasn't getting an overall view. And it wasn't until I began putting the map together that I kept on coming up with the same names, you know, same oh, people. Yeah. And I, that was when I started to make some very interesting connections that the perpetrators were coordinated in what they were doing. And Aboriginal people were learning a lot uh, from watching the perpetrators and what they were doing and learning from it. And so I think the story is a much more complex and um, a, a, a story that, you know, continues on. 
And what I do find from my research is that in the earlier period, in you know, 1788, say to 1850, that uh, they're largely soldiers who are the perpetrators mm. carrying out. Whereas I've been brought up to believe that the perpetrators were largely convicts, um, you know, sort of people at the bottom of the social scale. And mm. in fact, they're often led by people who are at the top of the social scale. In other words, mm. they know exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's interesting because I was going to ask actually, because, you know, the work that you focused on in Tassie was around the 1920s. And then when you look yeah. at uh, the massacres that happened in and around uh, the Guaida or, or I guess what, you know, people know as um, Mile Creek and then also yeah. uh, uh, um, Waterloo Creek as well. Um, was, 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 so we're looking at like a 10 year difference between these things where, you know, like you said, through the work that you were doing, where mapping out yeah. uh, the massacres, you started, started seeing similar names and, and the people yeah. involved in these things as well. Is that in a way, were they involved in a way as if like they just left and were moving somewhere else or they were coming up, you know, being ordered, you know, as military officers or as soldiers or where was the connection, you know, with that, with them coming up to sort of these different areas? Yes. Well, you know, the frontier is moving all the time. Um, you know, the settlers are moving out with their sheep and cattle and they want military protection. You know, mm -hmm. they know that Aboriginal people are going to resist them uh, and they know that, uh, you know, the Camilleroy, for example, are, are seen as a very... Um, you know, they the Camilleroy are really determined to defend their country. Mm -hmm. So the military presence is very strong, particularly along the Guada. Mm -hmm. And uh, the military are teaching the settlers a few tactics. You know, mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're going to you're going to Camilleroy country, you have to be prepared to attack the Camilleroy and we'll show you how to do it. So they're mm. trading tactics all the time. And the Camilleroy, of course, are watching very, very closely. Mm. And they often have many uh, victories over the settlers. They keep them at bay. They drive them out of certain parts of Camilleroy country for, you know, five, six, ten years. And then when the settlers um, are better organised, they'll come back again. So the... The frontier is moving backwards and forwards all the time. And mm. the British are throwing in their best resources. You know, this wasn't some uh, Saturday afternoon event. This was a carefully planned campaign to destroy the Camilleroy people. But mm. the Camilleroy are always fighting back and they're always driving the settlers back. So it's, mm. a, it's not just something that happens overnight. It's, mm. a, it's a long campaign and i think we need to know more about that definitely of course and like as i just said before you know like that's you know I, i'm very proud of where i come from you know and yep. sort of you know having this sort of sense of um knowing like you know all you know i guess as of recent sort of you know this contemporary sort of yes. political or warriorship you know there, there's been lots of yes. you know gamilaroi or camilaroi people that have sort of you know been involved in campaigns over the years so i'm very interested and to hear about this yes. and, and about this sort of period of time but before we go there um you know your 
could we sort of you know do it as a timeline where we sort of look at Tasmania because I know you sort of done some research uh, down that yeah. way um, on the Black Wars. You know, uh, yeah. what's some of the stuff that you found there, and then we'll come back to Kimilori. We'll save the okay. best for last. Okay. No. Okay. Well, you know, the Tasmanian Wars are in the 1820s and it's a it's a sort of similar story to Camilleroy, but it's in a smaller uh, in a smaller area. You know, it's a, uh, a, the wars in Tasmania took place in the, on the Midland Plain between Hobart and Launceston. Mm -hmm. And so only 120, 120 miles about uh, three, uh, about 350 kilometres um, between, or less than that, isn't it? It's about um, 200 kilometres between Hobart and Launceston, mm -hmm. and it's about uh, 80 kilometres wide. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, sheep being brought into the area in a very quickly over a period of about two or three years. So in one year, there's the Midland Plain, which is the big kangaroo hunting grounds of Tasmania. Uh, you know, there'd be half a dozen settlers and a few thousand sheep. Mm. But the following year, the following year, there would have been 50 settlers and 200,000 sheep. You know, yeah. that's a big change in just a space of 12 months. Mm. So the Aboriginal people, whose country that is, have really got to develop some pretty strong effective tactics to keep these settlers at bay mm -hmm. and the settlers are saying oh you know we're being attacked um and so they expect the 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 colonial government in tasmania to defend them so mm. the colonial government has two big military regiments to support mm -hmm. them more about a thousand soldiers so they send them out constantly on patrol to try and track down the Aboriginal people. And, you know, the war goes on for nearly a decade. And it's, you know, sometimes the, the soldiers are successful, sometimes they're not. So it's a very, it's a very concentrated guerrilla war, guerrilla war between the Aboriginal people, the soldiers and the settlers. What we don't have is the soldiers' reports of what they're doing. We've got, I've got information about patrols going out. I've got no information about how they return and what they've, what they've done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the sources are very unsure. So I, I know there's soldiers there. I know they're sent out, but I don't know what happens when they're out there and they make no reports that I can find about mm -hmm. when they come back to base. Yeah, so yeah. I'm reliant a lot on the newspaper evidence, which is useful, but not not detailed enough. Mm -hmm. And I guess as well, like Tasmania in itself, you know, being an isolated sort of um, yeah. state, you know, outside of, you know, um, it being its own sort of island as well, has, its, I guess, one, its limitations in terms of, um, you know, I guess resistance and allyship from other from other mobs that I'm sure other mainland Aboriginal people would have used in the frontier. I'm sure, um, but you know, here in Tasmania, they're very isolated. So one, I guess, you know, their livelihoods are different. You know, before colonisation, but then even due to it as well, with um, the the frontier violence, the con uh, and the conflict, it, 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 it's very different. Yes, 
it's not really all that different, Bo. Mm -hmm. um, yep. The Tasmanian Aboriginal people are, you know, are very, very similar to the people on the mainland. Mm. And what we find in Tasmania is that these settlers are really very quickly finding that you can't run several thousand sheep on a few hundred acres. You've got to have <laughs> yeah. a lot of land. So they very quickly decide that Tasmania is too small for the settlers. So they quickly go across to Victoria and into New South Wales, where they can mm. take up the vast areas of land. So they've learned a lot of tactics against the Aboriginal people in Tasmania. And you get the same names coming over to Victoria that have been in Tasmania. I thought, oh, look at this family name. Yeah. They've been in Tasmania. What they do is they send the next generation, they send mm. their sons over to Victoria, and then the next generation, or even even in Victoria, they find they haven't got enough land, so they come up to New South Wales. So these settlers are learning as they go, and they're ruthless. Mm. Each generation is more ruthless than the, than the last. So Tasmania, I think, is a good training ground or a testing ground, and I, I think these settlers are learning a lot about how Aboriginal people uh, are carrying out their guerrilla activities in defending their territory and trying to drive mm. the, the settlers out. So when the settlers arrive up in the wider area in your country, these settlers are better prepared. They've learned a lot. They've learned a lot from their parents. They've learned a lot from the soldiers. They've learned a lot from uh, the police about how to tackle the Camilleroy. And they're still being driven back. So mm. I think we've got to look, you know, we have to uh, give a lot more acknowledgement to the successful tactics of the Aboriginal people of keeping these invaders at bay. Mm. And they you, do mm. for long periods of time. But in the end, the settlers are driven, the Aboriginal people are defeated because the settlers have got better weapons, they've got, they're better planned, and they're prepared to carry out very expensive campaigns against the Camilleroy people. Waterloo mm. Creek was an incredibly expensive campaign. You've got uh, more than 30 soldiers on horseback, well-armed, well-provisioned, and determined that they're not going back to base until they've killed a lot of people. They're out there for six weeks or nearly two months, actually. They're out there on patrol. That is very expensive. Mm. You know, anybody who's worked in the army knows that these campaigns use up a lot of resources. We need to know more about that, that this mm. was an expensive operation to uh, defeat the Aboriginal people. And the mm. Camilleroy fought, you know, fought, they were very seasoned campaigners themselves. So we need to know more about that. We really Definitely. do. There's so much more that we need to know. Um, well, well, I guess just on that as well, uh, in your sort of uh, research uh, that you did in the past, were there much that you did find on tactics, whether it's um, up, uh, you know, in and around New South Wales, the Kimilaroi, or down in Tasmania about some of the tactics that was, was used from the Aboriginal people? Oh, yes. Yes. The, the Aboriginal people use the time of day to attack. You know, they don't attack any time of day. They're usually attacking uh, uh, 
at dawn or they, they're usually always attacking in daylight, but it's a time in daylight when um, the settlers' houses are least defended, you know, when there's fewer people around, because they watch, you know, they, they watch what the settlers are doing. They watch for the moment when they're vulnerable and that's when they attack. So that's, we need to know a lot more about those Aboriginal tactics. We've mm. got some work that's done, but more work is happening all the time. Mm. And we're realising now that Aboriginal people used all of their knowledge and resources to find out when the settlers are at their most vulnerable. Mm. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're working out what is the best time uh, to attack uh, settlers in terms of their resources, so, mm. you know, the sheep and cattle, and also to plunder the houses. And mm. as the Black War goes on, uh, the Aboriginal people are burning down the settlers' huts. You know, mm -hmm. their, their tactics are improving over time as they learn a lot more along the way. Mm. And, and some of these tactics are used over in Victoria and then up in New South Wales. Mm. And I think Aboriginal people are learning from what you know the, you know the Camilla Royal watching about what the Wiradjuri have been doing to defend mm. their country, and so by the time the settlers arrive up in Camilla Royal country, the Camilla Royal are better prepared, and that's mm. why war against the Camilla Royal is over such a long period of time. Mm. Um, so oh, sorry, we don't we know, and what I find extraordinary is we know so little about this, mm. and yet mm. at the time. Everybody knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, sort of yeah. Died. yeah. it went into this great silence. You know, Aboriginal people. Oh, they. You know, they were. They. They didn't know anything, and uh, you know. So you just think this is ridiculous. Hmm. So we've got a lot more Indigenous researchers out there now, who are learning a lot more about what their own people were doing, and mm -hmm. I think that's really exciting. Really exciting. It, it is. It is. I actually had. Um, Callum Plank Dixon on the first episode and he wrote um, yeah. Surviving New England which is a, an amazing book as well and he's a good friend of mine and then I believe in the fourth or third episode fifth episode I had Angus Murray who's a Radjuri yeah. uh, PhD yeah. candidate who, who was working on tactics himself um, last week I had a chat to Fred Carr from Victoria and we spoke about yep. uh, the resistance around I believe it was the Ballarat area uh, and, yes. and, and, and he called it, you know, the economic warfare that Aboriginal people waged um, on, you know, on settlers. Um, and, and then, like, when you were just sort of mentioning before when they sent, you know, uh, 30 soldiers on horseback for six weeks, you know, whether or not, you know, that sort of coincides with sort of, um, you know, that sort of economic warfare that Aboriginal people waged, you know, on settlers, you know, I mean, this mm. still comes into play, you know, with um, how... I guess, you know, the tactics of, of Aboriginal people were sort of used, um, or, uh, you know, played out in terms of, you know, you know, using military resources or whatever, you know, like the, 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 the campaigning sort of, you know, um, is, um, is effective. Very effective. And I, uh, I think that the work that's being done by researchers in Victoria now is very interesting. Um, we do find that a lot of these campaigns are carried out 
in a, in a period of drought, you know, the settlers have arrived and they suddenly found that there's not much water around. So the contest for water is usually a trigger for, for conflict. There's no doubt about that. Aboriginal people, of course, know exactly where the water <laughs> is. <laughs> Whereas the settlers coming in don't know where the water is and they've got all of this huge numbers of sheep and cattle. So, you know, it's, it's a much more complicated story than, mm. we, than we've previously understood. And I think um, now that we've got a lot more Indigenous researchers in there, they know a lot more about this than I do. They know where the they know the terrain better than I do. They know where the water is, and they know mm. where conflict is likely to occur. Mm. It's not mm. an accident that um, Waterloo Creek took place where it did. It wasn't mm. an accident. And you know, indigenous researchers can tell us more about that, and mm. I think that's really very interesting. And it was, uh, and while it was a horrendous massacre, it took place over, a, you know, the, a whole day uh, and probably longer. And I think that uh, it's very interesting the soldiers don't acknowledge when they get wounded. They can't afford to acknowledge that they that any of them were wounded. And I find that very interesting. We've mm. got to learn to read between the lines of the of what we know. You know, it's really learning to analyse the source material much better than we have in the past. Yeah. Oh, of course, definitely. You know, and I guess that, you know, the part you mentioned about, you know, the soldiers in Tasmania documenting going yeah. down, but then no yeah. document coming back as well. And the only sources right. you had, you know, were from sort of, you know, uh, papers right. at the time. Do you, right. give, and do you think that was, you know, somewhat of a, um, a, a tactic um, in terms of, not saying how gruesome or you know how it played out as well yes they're not they're you know they they're not really allowed to acknowledge that they've killed lots of people mm. they're not really uh, because then you know the, the the government has to account for what's going on and while there's lots of soldiers in Tasmania uh, they're not really acknowledging that they're there to um, you know, to contain Aboriginal resistance. They think, mm. oh, they're there really to make sure that the convicts don't run away. Well, I'm beginning to realise that's, that's a front, that's a furphy. Mm. The soldiers are there because there's intense Aboriginal resistance. You know, it is called the Black War. It goes on for nearly 10 years. And uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of people killed in that war, not only Aboriginal people, but a lot of settlers and uh, their families and uh, their workers. And, you know, it's, it's pretty intense. It's pretty mm. intense. Do, do, it's expensive. Sorry. It's expensive. do you think, um, yeah, like, well, you mentioned before as well, you know, um, that you were taught that this was Aboriginal people versus settlers or sort of the lower denominant against each other. Yeah. You know, it was, you know, the dregs of society yeah. always fighting amongst uh, each other. Did, did you, so do you think that, you know, there was sort of some intent saying, um, you know, some lie saying that, you know, the British soldiers would never, it was never sort of an act of war, you know, um, where they weren't using soldiers, it was just sort of, you know, the settlers or the pastors or everybody else that was involved in sort of the conflicts. You know, like, like, do you see that there's, there's somewhat of a, uh, of a contradiction? Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, in Tasmania, of course, they declared martial law. Mm -hmm. Martial law 
is really uh, the right to go and kill people with impunity. Yes. But it's largely soldiers who've got that right. It's not it's not convicts and settlers who've got that right. So mm. it's the soldiers who have to go out there and conduct the war. We've got martial law against the Wiradjuri in, in Round Bathurst, and they bring in soldiers to do that. So martial law is the right for soldiers to kill people with impunity. Martial mm. law is a declaration of war. Uh, and both the... Um, the governor at the time in uh, in New South Wales got into trouble from London. They said, you know, how can you declare martial law against these people, you know? Mm. So they decide that they will, the, the, governor, the government in Sydney decides, well, we'll continue the war, but we won't call it martial law. You mm. know, we'll, mm. we'll, we'll still be sending soldiers out there, but it will become a secret war. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you... So, yeah. That's, I think that's the difference between the Camilleroy and the Wiradjuri. The Wiradjuri mm. had to fight a war that was declared. Declared, yeah. The Camilleroy are fighting an undeclared war and it's uh, harder to find out what's going on. Well, well, I guess, like you sort of mentioned it before as well, when, you know, the families were leaving Tasmania, um, they yeah. had military support with them as well um, as yep. sort of some you know, guard of honour. Yes, definitely, definitely. And they expect to get military support. You know, mm. they're, they're out there on the, on the frontier uh, extending the empire and mm. they, they expect military support and they largely get it. You know, that's, mm. you know, I was brought up to believe that it was really just the settlers out there battling, you know, Aboriginal resistance. But no, no, there's lots of soldiers out there and tracking down those soldiers, um, and they're out there in, in deployed in small groups, which is how most wars are fought. Um, and I think it's interesting that it becomes a secret war. Um, mm. uh, but those soldiers are expending a lot of ammunition. They're using, <laughs> they're, they've decided that um, in the Wiradjuri War, uh, the soldiers were on foot, but against the Camilleroy, the soldiers mm. are all on horseback, horseback and yeah. that's huge that's yeah, huge yeah. that you know so once they get up to Camilleroy country everybody's going to be on horseback mm. that's an expensive operation it's much more expensive to have soldiers on horseback than it is to have them as foot soldiers mm. so the mm. expense nobody really talks about the increased expense Mm, well, that's one of the things that I asked um, Fred last week was, you know, is there, obviously it'll be hard to sort of give a number in terms of yep. um, the, that, that sort of economic warfare that Aboriginal people waged against sort of partial settlers and, and that as well. But I was just thinking uh, why you said that as well. Um, you know, it, it would have been, you know, British soldiers would have been used um, for, uh, for so long, I guess, you know, uh, to sort of, um, be that guard of honour or whatever you want to say, you know, for farmers and, and whatnot as well. Um, and then, you know, 1901 comes, Australia's federated. Um, and then what we see up to about 1933 is sort of these these battles, even with, you know, police officers that Aboriginal people oh, yeah. are having as well. So, you know, it's, you know, you know, it's not just sort of like, like we've been speaking about, it, you know, it's not just sort of these, these um, partialists or these, you know, the family of, of convicts 
you know, it was British soldiers in the beginning that were sort of, you know, waging these wars with Aboriginal people. And then we see, you know, the federation of this country, and we sort of see the transfer from British soldiers to, you know, Australian uh, police force in certain parts of the area, um, you know, waging these wars against Aboriginal people as well. Like one of my episode eight that I did with uh, Patrick Gibson, he's a researcher yeah. from uh, Jambana, um, oh, UTS, a uh, really good guy he is. Um, and he spoke heavily on how adamant the Australian government was in supporting the NT police um, in a punitive expedition uh, in 1933. So, you know, yeah, it's, you know, in what you know, at one at the beginning of that hundred and forty year conflicts, you know, we see you know the British, you know, really sort of you know um, sending their military here, obviously to expand the colony, you know, and off the back of that, using you know pastoralists and sort of you know uh, yeah. convicts to sort of you know set up base. And then we see, you know, the Federation of Australia and we see, you know, the police, the Australian police force being continued to, you know, um, this authoritarian, you know, sort of, um, you know, are still being used as sort of rank and file to sort of go into Aboriginal communities as well. Uh, I absolutely agree. And these police forces are really special forces units. Mm. Most of these members of the police force are former soldiers themselves. Mm. And, uh, you know, they know all the tricks of the trade and uh, they're hired because they know, you know, how to behave like uh, a special forces unit mm. patrolling the frontier. They're really doing very similar things to what the soldiers were doing against the Gamilaroi, you mm. know, nearly a hundred years earlier. The tactics haven't changed very much, but the big difference is that these police are got more sophisticated weapons, you know, yeah. the history of weapons it, it, uh, it, over this period. They get better and better weapons. They can fire over a wider, a longer range and they're more lethal. Mm. And so uh, it's, they can do a lot more damage. So mm. you only need a small squad of police on horseback and they can go into an Aboriginal camp and just do the most unspeakable damage. So mm. what I'm finding with the massacre map, that as we move uh, post-Federation, that these massacres, they're killing more people in one operation. You know, they're mm. killing up, they're killing hundreds. Whereas mm. uh, in earlier period, they're killing 30 and 40, but now they're killing hundreds. So mm. they're, getting, they're getting more ruthless, more ruthless mm. Mm. Uh, over time. So I think that's something we need to know. Definitely. And, uh, and I think that the most, if you do a bit of research on the background of these police that are there in the 1920s and 1930s, you'll find nine times out of ten they're former. Uh, they've they've been in the army. They've been mm. in the uh, often fought in the First World War, and they've come back to Australia. They're a bit lost, and so they go and hire themselves out to the local police force. And you know they're they're really soldiers. They're former soldiers. They know mm. exactly what to do, and they're more ruthless, you know. Mm. And and just as World War One is a is a more is probably the most ruthless war that was known until that time, so the frontier becomes more ruthless yeah. in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, and we've still got a lot more research to do on that area on that mm. period of time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and I and I guess as well, you know, 
those police forces, you know, knowing, you know, that they can get sort of the best, I guess you could say, out of, you know, hiring these people as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a bit of excitement about being a policeman on the frontier. And uh, normally they would be working with local settlers, what I call a joint operation between the police and the settlers. But many of the settlers too are former soldiers who've been mm. in the war. Mm. So, you know, they know what to do. They mm. know what to do. They know when to seize the right moment and inflict the greatest damage. So, mm. you know, these wars, they get become more ruthless over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. A pretty confronting story. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I guess just for people that are, you know, if you're new to sort of who, uh, uh, to Linda Ryan, you know, um, please check her work out. Um, uh, the Massacre Map uh, of Australia, you just Google it and it comes up. Um, you know, with that as well, um, well, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to do, you know, focus on the frontier and sort of the warriorship uh, from Aboriginal people and the resistance is, um, you know, there are figures that we know about, you know, and if, you know, if you're lucky, you know, you can, you can rattle off maybe about a handful of these figures or of these sort of conflicts, um, of these uh, conflicts that happened. Um, you know, with the massacre map, you know, it's, it's hundreds of sort of um, incidents that happened, you know, all over Australia. Um, you know, yeah. with those as well, I'm sure, you know, before, you know, the settlers and the, the, the military or the police rode in um, and sort of massacred these mob, you, were there many accounts of sort of, um, you know, uh, battles that Aboriginal people had uh, with, um, you know, the settlers before, you know, a, a big massacre and obviously Mile Creek and Waterloo, you know, would be, you know, a, a key point in sort of that as well. But I'm sure, you know, these massacres indicated to the reasoning to, you know, because they just had a big war with somebody or, you know, um, is, is that reason why massacres took place as well is because of the resistance was so fierce? Absolutely. I mean, if the Aboriginal people weren't resisting, they wouldn't need to have massacres. And, uh, you know, there are many, uh, many Aboriginal warriors who are identified as standing up for their people and, uh, and the thing, and telling the settlers to go away. This is our country. Go away. This is our country. Go now. Leave. You know, and there's lots of Aboriginal words that the settlers learn from the Aboriginal warriors about country. Go away. Warra warra. Go away. Go away. You're in our country. So the settlers know they're invading someone else's country. Mm. And many of the settlers do get the names of warriors who are very defiant mm. and who launch raids on their on you know on their huts and on the on the sheep and cattle and and the settlers are very afraid of them very afraid mm -hmm. the settlers are always outnumbered by the aboriginal people and that's why they engage in massacres to get the soldiers to come in or the police to massacre them because that's the only way the, the settlers feel they can survive so it's absolutely ruthless out there mm -hmm. and of course some of these warriors as time goes on uh, get access to to the settlers' weapons, and of course they're crack shots. And uh, you know we've got many cases or many uh, accounts of how you know once uh, Aboriginal people get access to 
to the invaders' weapons, they can do a lot of damage. Mm. And they keep threatens at bay. And we need to know a lot more about that too. Definitely, definitely. It's a big story that we've been, uh, that's been uh, withheld from us, really. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, But a careful search of a lot of the records reveals the real story. But Mm. it takes a lot of hard work to do Mm. that. But we're getting there. We're getting Mm. there. I think we're getting a, a whole new story of the conquest of Australia and how Aboriginal people just fought every inch of the way. There's mm, no question. Mm, mm. Well, um, oh, definitely, you know, definitely. Even, you know, beyond the frontier, you know, to sort of, you know, the, uh, what is sort of, you know, uh, the contemporary sort of resistance that we have today still. But just on that as well, you know, when we look at sort of the tactics that have changed over the period of time, you know, and, you know, with using of, of, of guns, you know, and I guess, if people have sort of studied the frontier and know more about it, like one of the first names would be Jandamara that sort of, you know, comes to mind, you know, um, uh, from the Kimberleys in Western Australia. But also, I know you've done some research, uh, uh, um, you know, we were talking about Tasmania as well. Um, and I know um, my, my second episode and third episode, I focused on Tasmania and some of uh, the warriors shipped down that way. And there's a warrior, Aboriginal woman by the name of Walia who um, used uh, weapons as well. Are you familiar with her? Yes, I'm familiar with Walia and she was pretty amazing. She really did ter- terrorise the settlers, yeah. really. And um, she, and she, of course, uh, had been originally kidnapped by the sealers. So she had escaped because she um, took one of their guns and held them up and ran off and she was a crack shot and everyone was absolutely terrified of her. She was a, a real warrior. But there were a whole host of really important warriors in Tasmania and, you know, they really were incredibly successful over a considerable period of time in keeping the settlers at bay. I mean... Who are some of those? Hmm. Who, was, yes. who was some of those? Yes. Oh, who were they? Well, there was a guy called Tonga Longata who um, uh, was a, he had lost an arm at one point, but he was a brilliant tactician. He knew exactly the, the best moment to attack the settlers. He was really, he would watch settlers' um, uh, properties uh, for a period of days, and then he'd watch until uh, the leading settler might have might go off to town on the horse. That's when he would attack the property. So he was terrific on that. And then there was Manalagena, who led a a whole host of Aboriginal groups on the East Coast, and he was very well known. Uh, There was another, uh, uh, there were three or four of them who were well known and Mm. often written about in the local papers. You know, Mm. they were really looking at. Um, then there was Kikatapola, who'd actually lived, uh, brought up in a in a settler family, and then left and became a leader. And they were terrified of him because he could speak English very well. He knew the tactics of what the settlers were using, and uh, he was people who were, they, he was so well known that people every time there was an Aboriginal attack, it was a assumed that Kikutapala would have led it. Well, he was in so many places at once, according to the press, he couldn't have led them all. But 
they were certainly very well known. There was, you know, they were very well known in the press in Tasmania. Mm. And when they were, if any of them were captured, there were big stories about them in the press. You know, mm. they were, they really were incredibly well known and and feared, absolutely feared. Mm, mm, mm. Same in Victoria, there's a number there. So I think identifying these leaders uh, is really important. And yet, later on, as time goes past, uh, historians and anthropologists are saying, oh, Aboriginal people didn't have leaders, they didn't have chiefs, they didn't have any of these people, meaning they couldn't have conducted, they couldn't have been important in resisting the white people, you know, and you think, well, you know, who's Tonga Longata? Who's Manalagena <laughs> if they're not leaders? How is it that Aboriginal society didn't have any leaders? I grew up with that. I mean, I studied anthropology at university and I was told that in Aboriginal society, there were no leaders, there were no chiefs. And I thought, you know, and then I'm doing Aboriginal resistance. Well, you have to have a bit of leadership when you're doing resistance. You know? mm, 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 mm. And it was as if it was like denying that Aboriginal people could have conducted resistance. That's outrageous <laughs> today. Mm. You know, it is outrageous. So we've really got to get back to what was happening there at the time. And these leaders were not only feared, there was a bounty out on them for their capture. There were people out there trying to track them down, mm -hmm. just as they were in WA and in Queensland and anywhere else. We have to acknowledge mm -hmm. Aboriginal leadership because it's mm -hmm. so important to the story. Mm. But one of the things as well, um, or there's a few things I, got, I just got out of, out of that, I'll, I'll ask as well. Uh, one of the first ones, um, you know, like a, you know, it's been sort of described as as guerrilla warfare that Aboriginal people were waging um, in this con on this continent. Excuse me. Um, and one of yeah, I guess one of the main, I guess one of the big things, I guess, back then would have been that, you know, they couldn't necessarily identify, you know, who these people were. You know, they couldn't have photos or sketches saying, you know, look for this person. You know, so, so, so that sort of added to sort of like this element of surprise or sort of, you know, you know, the, the, you know when you were saying that, um, you know, these figures, you know, in Tasmania really, you know, made people afraid when, you know, knowing that they are, they are out there, but yet, you know, they didn't necessarily know who it was as well. Um, and then you sort of spoke about, <clears throat> sorry, did you want to, <clears throat> um, and then you spoke about how sort of, you know, Aboriginal people would do these raids as well. Um, you know, like they'd wait, you know, um, oh, yeah. they'd, they'd wait for, you know, uh, the, the stock people to leave the camp and then mm. go raid the camp or they'd watch and wait for when, you know, they fire their weapons. Um, and then they'll shoot, you know, then I'll tell, you know, uh, the people to shoot. Um, yeah, the tactics that was used, you know, against Aboriginal people, you know, um, and also like, you know, before, before colonization battle within this continent, I guess, would have been seen, um, 
you know, would have been conducted and seen on an equal platform, you know, and then we sort of see the British coming with, you know, far superior weapons, you know, uh, the guns or the cannons. Um, and then we see sort of the tactics, I guess, change in terms of, you know, not meeting on, on sort of designated battlegrounds or, you know, battling's change, you know, like um, we see massacres sort of ripping the country, um, you know, and I guess that's sort of a, a, another big thing to acknowledge, do you think, within the history um, of the conflict is, is how it differed, you know, Aboriginal tactics would have changed, you know, in that period of times to sort of, you know, the, the, you know, the British, you know, they, they wanted a new, a new continent, you know, they wanted to expand the colony, you know, and they, wanted, and, and, and they were willing to do it um, in any way possible. Oh, absolutely. Well, they would willing to do it in any way possible within their own abilities in terms of their own access to weapons and mm -hmm. soldiers and so on. Uh, and there's certainly that Aboriginal people learned very quickly mm -hmm. the tactics that they had to develop. You know, mm -hmm. they, this idea that Aboriginal people were this sort of Stone Age culture that had been living the same kind of lives, you know, forever and ever and ever, of course, is a, is a you know, load of rubbish. That Aboriginal people have always been very adaptable for, to changes in climate, to a whole range of things. To, mm. uh, and so they, were, they very quickly learned what the British were about. Mm. Um, and, they, and one of the first things they tried to do was to incorporate the British into their own system of mutual obligation and mutual reciprocity. And when the British made it quite clear that they weren't prepared to do that, that's when the Aboriginal people said, well, if you're not going to adopt the way uh, what we demand from you, then we don't want you. Go away. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, there's a lot more, you know, if, there's a lot more tactics going on and learning about each other. And the mm. Aboriginal people are very swift learners, let me mm. tell you. They, they, they know the terrain. They know the country. They know when the rain comes. You know, they know when it's drought. They know when something is going to happen. The settlers knew nothing. The British knew nothing mm. about that. And they often made shocking mistakes. Um, but often what we do have to perhaps learn a bit more is how because the the British didn't know very much about the terrain or how the climate worked. They would say, oh, we went out and tried to establish a farm out there, but the drought drove us back. But we could say the Aboriginal people drove them back because yeah. the Aboriginal people knew it was a drought. <laughs> and they would, they would go and, and sort of take enough sheep and cattle to make the settlers realise it wasn't worth it and they'd go back. So we've got to... We've got to accord Aboriginal people far more respect in mm. understanding about how to contain these invaders. And, you know, we've, we've got so much more to learn. And I think Aboriginal people are very quickly using all the tactics that they knew and then devising new tactics as mm. well. Or, or even, you know, you said, you know, in most cases, you know, there was sort of this um, peace brokering the first, you know, like, you know, Aboriginal people wanted to exhaust, you know, yep. the, 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 
the less the, the least amount of sort of conflict first you know you know with, with sort of going in and and sort of you know having you know having some sort of peace um, but then yeah. after that as well and and like another interesting point as well that i've found out you know like i'm finding out new things um, in each episode, which, you know, um, which is amazing for me because I love, um, I love, one, I love this sort of type of history, um, is that how widespread the resistance was, you know, like, like you know, here in Brisbane, there's Dunderley and, you know, in Toowoomba, in the Darling Downs, there's, there's, there's Multagora, <clears throat> but, you know, to our knowledge now, um, you know, we don't realise that there were many other people you know, amongst them as well. Um, you know, so there's this like relationship that Aboriginal people have continued to have during the frontier, you know, to support um, their sort of, um, their resistance as well. Um, you know, through your sort of work and studies, have you sort of seen, you know, this sort of pattern of sort of um, allyship between sort of different mobs or individuals as well because i know up here in brisbane speaking with libby connors and also uh ray kirkove <clears throat> they mentioned that you know there's a sort of almost sort of like 40 to 20 year period uh where there's sort of Maltagara, his father moppy dundali um and i believe it's billy barlow and you know there was like a, a whole list of you know aboriginal people who continued to campaign you know in these sort of you know, I guess what history puts them in as silos, but, you know, um, to keep them sort of, um, to keep um, them to say, to keep us thinking that, hey, you know, they never knew each other. But, you know, these are people who were in Southeast Queensland that would have, you know, whose people, you know, in, in that time before and after, you know, kept that sort of relationality up together as well. So what we see is sort of, or what we would have saw, I guess, you know, is sort of the transfer of, um, of knowledge and, you know, the allyship, you know, when, when battling on the frontier as well. Was this sort of something that you saw or came across with in any of your studies? Yes, I certainly did, Bo. Um, we do, uh, I've got some good examples from Tasmania, for example, where we've got large, uh, large groups of Aboriginal people, for example, the Oyster Bay mob, mm -hmm. who were largely led by Tonga Longata. But as they're getting picked off and, and their numbers are declining, they largely, uh, they end up working with another group called the Big River People, who are led by uh, another leader, and, and they come together and share tactics. And then, one, and then when, um, when the leader of the uh, Big River People, Mom Paliata, gets, uh, uh, he's finally captured, you know, Tonga Longata has to become the, the leader of both groups, you know, and he has to keep these people alive. And he um, he has all these tactics to keep the British at bay for about nearly two years. I mean, mm. that's a long time when, you know, when you've got a search and destroy uh, police and soldiers out there every day of the week. I mean, mm. he has to learn to look after his, these people and to keep them out of the way and engage in raids himself. I mean, you know, these guys were, they were brilliant tacticians, brilliant tacticians. You can really have to compare them with the, the Mau Mau people in Kenya, uh, with the resistors in, uh, the, uh, in Malaya in the emergency, and that's in the 1950s and 1960s. You know, these are people 
who are, you know, they're resistance leaders of immense ability and, mm. and tactics and they're thinking all the time. They're great. They're, their big asset is they know the terrain. You know, it's a mm. bit like uh, Zanana Guzman in East Timor. He was up in the, uh, you know, he held the Indonesians at bay in parts of uh, East Timor for 10 years. Mm. Well, we've got similar resistance leaders in Australia and mm. it's about time we accorded them more recognition. You know, mm, they're mm. the ones who need the statues and the monuments because they were truly amazing. We can find them in Tasmania. We can find them all over Australia. Mm. And I have no idea why we haven't accorded them the recognition they deserve because they really held their people together who were much depleted. What we're finding in Tasmania is, you know, you get a few people being killed, picked off, and the group's just gradually getting smaller and smaller. But there's a, you know, so you've got a leader who's holding these remnant groups together. You know, they're fantastic. They're really mm. fantastic. Mm, and mm. We, do, we really need to accord them greater recognition than they've, mm, they've mm. had. And I have um, no idea why, mm. why we haven't done that. Well, well, I guess on that, like, we'll sort of wrap up as well. Um, but just before I do, you know, in... Like, you know, you just mentioned, you know, there's sort of this greater, um, you know, hardly any sort of acknowledgement to sort of these figures, um, even sort of in this sort of era at the moment where monuments are sort of being ripped down, like they're still yeah. being left left out of this discussion. Um, you know, were, were you involved in the history wars back in the day um, when there was the, the, the denial of frontier wars and um, you know, the massacres and the warship from Aboriginal people? Obviously, that would have played a massive part and that, you know, that has a massive impact on today in terms of why, you know, Aboriginal people are leaving, being left out of this discussion at the moment about sort of monuments and statues. Yes, very much so. The history wars were designed to deny that anything happened on the frontier, that there were no massacres, and Aboriginal people just faded away. They, or they died out from inadvertently introduced, you know, European diseases. Well, it's very convenient. Uh, you know, nothing, we, you know, we didn't do anything to hasten Aboriginal uh, people being, you know, disappearing. And uh, it was very, and I was uh, very much a target in that in that history wars debate because the debate largely focused on Tasmania, in the Black War, and while I had not acknowledged a lot of massacres in the Black War, I did say that there were a lot of Aboriginal people killed. Mm -hmm. So um, when that was up, you know, so I hadn't really been thinking about massacre in any serious way until that moment. I was more interested in Aboriginal resistance rather than settler activism. So I then started to do a lot more research on massacres and how they happened. Uh, I looked at the international literature on massacre and found that the great interest in massacre had really been quite recent from the massacre at Srebrenica in Bosnia in 1995 and that a lot of new scholarship began to emerge about massacre. And then a lot of colonial historians from around the world suddenly realized that massacre had been 
the case strategy that most colonists had used anywhere, particularly in the British Empire, mm. to contain Aboriginal resistance. And that's when I got interested in, in developing a map. So mm. it was from all of that. Yeah, yeah. I guess just one last one, one last question. Um, how well recorded is, I guess, the history, you know, frontier history in other parts of the world compared to Australia? Like, are we, are we, are we far behind? Yes, we're a long way behind, Bob. We've got a lot more to do. Although, uh, uh, historians in South Africa uh, and in New Zealand have acknowledged that there were more massacres than they've realised. Uh, when I say that we're a long way behind, at least uh, New Zealand and South Africa acknowledged that there were big frontier wars. You know, mm. they actually acknowledged that they'd happened. We weren't acknowledging that in Australia. Um, mm. Certainly Henry Reynolds was, you know, the real pioneer in opening this up. But there were a lot of other people who were simply denying anything that Henry wrote uh, and what I had been writing. So that was certainly not the case in New Zealand, but New Zealand historians are now telling me that there were a lot more massacres uh, of Maori people in New Zealand than historians had acknowledged, and that the New Zealand wars, while we knew about them, they were not really being taught in New Zealand schools. The, the New Zealand government is now acknowledging that they were very serious and we need to know more. The Canadians, have yet to acknowledge their frontier wars, which is very interesting. The Americans, of course, the wars on the Western Plains. So there's a bit of acknowledgement, but not very much. But in a way, Australia was really sort of really right, well behind. But I now think we're moving up to the front. Mm. <laughs> because we're doing a lot more work, we're finding out things and Historians uh, overseas are looking at what we're doing and asking similar questions of their own frontiers. Mm. So I think the frontier is returning in a very big way right across the world at the mm. moment, both in the former French colonies, the former German colonies, uh, in other parts of the world. So I think this is really big at the moment. And the work we've been doing in Australia, I think, is moving up in setting the pace mm. well that's interesting too isn't it yes no, it is it is uh, um thank you lindell for coming on uh frontier war stories and having a yarn uh with us you know it, it's 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 always good to sort of have you know um you know i've, I've had i've had you on the uh, on on, on Let's Talk or 989 FM quite a few times, you know, to talk about, you know, the amazing work that you are doing. It is, you know, much appreciated, the, the work that you do do uh, in, in these fields as well. And just really quickly, uh, for people listening, if they sort of want to find any of the things that you've, uh, the books or research that you've done, uh, where can they sort of find some of your stuff? Well, first of all, there's the map, the, the big mm. massacre map, which is my, you know, what has taken up my life over the last 10 years. If they just Google in uh, Google Frontier Massacres, uh, a link to the map should come up. So that's mm -hmm. important. Uh, probably the best known book on Tasmania is called Tasmanian Aborigines, A History Since 1803. That's published by Alan and Unwin. 
and I think the rest of my work is largely in books that are now out of print, so we okay. won't go down there. Okay, right. <laughs> well, that, that's all good. Now, thank you, you know, for coming on and making some time to have a chat a uh, on Frontier War Stories. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Oh, good. I just ended um, the recording. Oh, no, I didn't wait there. Okay.